Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Last month was the 30th anniversary of Chernobyl. The meltdown at this Soviet nuclear plant was the worst nuclear disaster in history. They kind of measure these disasters on a scale like the, the Richter scale. They have something called the International Nuclear Event Scale. The worst event is a level 7, and Chernobyl was a level 7. There's only been one other level 7, and that was Fukushima about five years ago. To put things in perspective, Three Mile Island, which was one of the worst disasters in the U.S., was a 5. And so when it's a level 7, you get a, a lot of uh, emissions and, and nuclear fuel being spewed, and it, it becomes a, it's called a, a full-scale meltdown. So this was just one of those slow-motion disasters. It's kind of similar to the way I recall F Fukushima, that it just, you know, you heard about it, and then it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. This nuclear incident permanently poisoned, I mean, when I say permanently, it's like, you know, for 100,000 years, permanently poisoned large parts of Eastern Europe. And, and, you know, the poisoning is basically radioactivity that, that is blown off from this meltdown, and it just settles into the soil, and, and it takes... So some of the isotopes of these radioactive materials take 100,000 years to decay. So you can kind of never go there. And, and it also gets into the food chain and it kind of moves around. So, you know, I kind of, we're doing the show about the, the, the nuclear disasters and cleaning up nuclear plants just to kind of put in perspective what some of the um, uncalculated costs of, of some of our power systems are. And yeah, you can see that the nuclear systems generate power very inexpensively, but when you look at some of the externalities of cleaning them up or the, the problems with disaster, really just how long it takes to build the plants, it's significant. So this disaster really was one of the biggest illustrations of the shortcomings of nuclear power. And it also showed some of the shortcomings of a, a very secretive Soviet political system. And I, I, I got to mention that as, as far as what happened at Chernobyl, it was a relatively old reactor design. But the problem is that, you know, it, it, when you're dealing with something as unpredictable and as dangerous and, and, and disaster prone as nuclear fuel, even the new designs have hidden flaws. And, and we keep kind of finding those. I mean, there was supposed to be no more disasters after Chernobyl. And, then, you know, then we had Fukushima. And who knows what the next one's going to be. So here's, here's what happened. It, it actually happened on April 26, 1986. There was a test that was being done at the Chernobyl reactor in, in Russia. And there was a spike in power, and this spike in power caused a problem with some of the equipment, and it wasn't able to uh, keep the system cool enough. And when it got too hot, it expanded, and the reactor vessel, which kind of tried to contain this, exploded. Water, water got in, and then you have these things called steam explosions. When water hits, when a lot of water hits exposed nuclear fuel, which is as hot as anything can get, it, you get a steam explosion. It just instantly turns into uh, steam, and it blows things apart. And and that explosion exposed the graphic moder the the graphite moderator. And I'll I'll mention what that is in a minute. The graphite moderator is basically carbon, and the carbon caught fire, and the the fire was was fueled by melting nuclear fuel rods. And, and that, that just gets hotter and hotter and hotter. It kind of melts together. And it just the fire does not go out for a real long time. And, and what en ended up happening is that as this thing burned, everything in the neighborhood of those nu melting nuclear fuel rods just melted and, and got caught up in the, the burning fire. And the smoke and the ashes and all these uh, nuclear materials just kind of went up into the air, into a cloud. And it just kind of, it spread moving, I think it spread moving 
through Eastern Europe, and it, it covered a large part of Russia, Belarus, and other parts of Northern Europe, just just based on the prevailing winds. Now, so so the the way the Chernobyl reactor was designed is they had these things called graphite moderators. So you have fuel rods and you have this, this graphite material that absorbs some of the neutrons, which slows it down. And when you pull the graphite away, then the fission products actually accelerate and it generates more heat. And that generates steam and everything should be fine. But when there was a flaw in that system, that's when this thing burned. Now, it's an older design. We use different designs right now, but they're still prone to problems, as we've seen at Fukushima when there was a, a tidal wave. Tidal wave knocked out the cooling system, then the reactor couldn't be cooled, and it, it had another meltdown. So it's not the kind of thing that's going to go away easily, and, and you suspect that there may be hidden flaws in other reactors. I mean, we're lucky here in the U.S. and California that found out that there were problems in the steam generating tubes that were in the San Onofre nuclear plant, and, and uh, the utilities here tried to fix those and spent a ton of money fixing them. And even after they fixed them, they found that there were still some flaws. They ended up shutting down the reactor. It was the, at the time, and it still is the case, it was cheaper to shut down the reactor, at least in the short term, and then add more capacity as far as natural gas generation than to try and fix it a third time. So um, that's, that's what's happening a lot to these older nuclear reactors. But back to Chernobyl. For 10 days... This this molten pile of fuel rods and nuclear material just stayed really, really hot. And it burned everything that got near it. And you continue to have smoke and radioactive ash pouring from the reactor. Over over that period and, and, and you know, for months afterwards, the Russian government moved 250,000 people away from the area of the reactor. There's a town near Chernobyl, and it's just like a ghost town. I mean, it's just they just moved everybody out. They just can't go back because the town is basically going to be radioactive for all intents and purposes for you know tens of thousands of years. A total of 77,000 square miles of land was contaminated with radiation. I mean, not all completely contaminated. You couldn't go there, but there was radiation. You would go around with a Geiger counter and the thing's going to click. It's, you know, it's not the kind of thing you want in your backyard. Most of this land was in Belarus, Russia, and the Ukraine. So it just, just poisoned huge areas. And you know, that's terrible for the people that live there. It's, it's terrible for the people who are still around there because there's thousands of people that were exposed to ra- this radiation. And, you know, it's, it's a long-term health hazard. Now, 31 cleanup workers died. And, and this is part of the secretive nature of the Russian system at the time, is that they were just sending people in, you know, put on the, these uh, special suits and, you know, try not to expose yourself. And they were trying to put the fire out. They're, they're doing their job for their country and very brave. But they died in a fairly short term from radiation exposure. And then thousands and thousands of more people were exposed to radiation, and they're going to develop long-term cancer. There's kind of no doubt about that. And, and um, you know, it's kind of sad when you hear some, some PR from the nuclear industry, and they're saying that there was never a death from nuclear power. I mean, that's just absolutely false. There's, there have been a lot of direct deaths, you know, 31 just at, at um, Chernobyl. There, there, um, I think we're, there were some deaths at the Fukushima plant, and then you just, you know, it's, it's harder to count the people that may indirectly die from weird forms of cancer that form from their exposure. There's a 19-mile uh, a zone, 20-mile zone around the reactor that's called an exclusion zone. Nobody can go there. There's only, you know, some weirdly shaped plants and uh, deformed animals 
in that area, but it's just, you just can't go there. It's just too dangerous even to go near it. You know, heck, I wouldn't want to be anywhere within a hundred miles of it. And it's not just a, a circle. You've got the area where the fallout came down. So it's, it's um, not directly around the reactor. Now, they did their best job to kind of and, you know, clean it up immediately. It's the same thing in, at, at Fukushima. There's 600,000 people. They were often referred to as Chernobyl liquidators. They were sent in to fight the fire at the nuclear plant and clean up the worst of the contamination. And, you know, you, you just know that these people were not properly trained, properly protected. I mean, they probably did their best, but there was just so much radiation. You just, you just can't minimize that exposure. And as I mentioned, 31 workers died from either the immediate explosion or from acute radiation sickness within several months. And literally millions of people in the region were exposed to that radiation. Um, so, so now here we are, 30 years later, big, you know, big disaster, I remember it. And 30 years later, what's the situation? Well, the milk from cows and Belarusian farmers still... Is, contains radioactive material that's 10 times higher than the food safety limit. So, you know, you got a cow grazing on grass, that, and they, they may be eating this grass, and then there's some fission products and radiation products in that grass, and they, they absorb it, and it goes into their milk. You know, you don't want to be drinking that milk, so you got to test it. But it's not just local to the disaster area. There's reindeer, this is kind of, you know, sad, but reindeer a 1,000 miles away, you know, west of uh, the reactor site that are unfit to eat because the meat has too much radiation in it. And and what happened is that the the fallout products got into the food chain, they got into lichen and, and other plants and fungus that does reindeer eat. And, uh, you know, it, it was absorbed into their body and, you know, gradually concentrated in the body of these reindeers. I, I read that wild boars in Germany, 700 miles away, are also too radioactive to eat. So there's a lot of hunters that you know, like to hunt boars in Germany. Well, you can hunt the boars, but when you kill the boar, you have to have the boar meat tested to make sure that it's not too radioactive to eat. So, you know, we, we've got that situation 30 years later, you know, the, the food chain's contaminated. Now, 30 years later also, they're in the process of finishing a giant steel and concrete arch. It's like a dome that's going to go over the entire reactor site, prevent any rain, prevent any wildlife, prevent any plants from getting in there, and, and really preventing any more leaks of radiation for 100 years. And that site is still really, really radioactive. I mean, you can't, can't even walk near it without a major amount of protection. I, I couldn't imagine how you'd protect yourself from that much radiation. They're spending a billion and a half dollars to uh, build this huge arch. It's, it's a massive structure. And in addition, there's an exclusion zone that's about a thousand square miles of forest and marshland on the border of Ukraine and Belarus. It's going to basically just be closed. People can't go there. There's going to be giant fences around it. And that's going to continue for, you know, for the foreseeable future. So it's clearly a disaster. Fukushima, similar problem, not quite as bad, at least as far as we know right now. They still haven't solved, they still haven't cleaned that thing up yet. And they really still haven't figured out how to prevent tidal wave problems. I mean, any reactor that's near the ocean that can be exposed to a tidal wave is, is exposed to that. And, you know, what, what happened at, at Fukushima was the tidal wave wiped out the emergency power system. And that could happen pretty much at any reactor. 
they have a lot of safety systems in place, but still, it's it's pretty tough to prevent that. So we're talking about initially the disasters, but you know, what happens to the old plants that didn't blow up? Uh, how do we? Can, what do we do with those? How do we clean them up? Well, the nuclear plants around the world were typically designed to last for thirty to forty years. Now, some of these plants, the life has been extended past 50 years, and, and they do a lot of testing on the metals to make sure that there's no cracks and make sure that nothing's brittle, that it's still going to be able to maintain its original operating pressures. Um, and then they may extend the license for these plants. So some of them are being extended for 50, maybe 60, heck, maybe seven years. But after that, they have to be decommissioned. And there's 150 reactors around the world that are just waiting to be decommissioned. You know, they, they turned them off. They pulled out the nuclear f- fuel rods, the fuel, so it's no longer hot from a thermal standpoint. I'm not exactly sure what they did with the fuel rods. They probably brought them somewhere else or they may be stored locally. And some of these reactors were small research reactors, but, but many of them were, were major power plants that are past their lifespan or not economic anymore. Yeah, they're, sh- they're shut down. They're too old or too unsafe, like the San, Ofr- San Onofre plant in California. And, and then, you know, the surprising thing that really kind of caught me by surprise was I was talking to some executives at the utilities, and they said, you know, we, the utilities sometimes wait 50 years before they turn the plant off, after they turn the plant off, to decommission it because they want the radioactivity to decay. It's easier to clean up. Going in right after you, it's running and trying to clean up that metal that was exposed to radiation, it's very expensive. And they figure, well, if we wait 50 years, the radiation levels will be lower. Now, I, I also kind of look at it as like, if we wait 50 years, it's someone else's problem. So we'll, we'll kind of talk about that in a minute. But but decommissioning these plants is very expensive, you know, even if you don't have the uncertainties. And you have these uncertainties because there's inflation over 50 years. Who the heck knows how much labor costs are going to be, what the new safety requirements are going to be in 50 years, what kind of cost overrun. So most of these projects, whatever the utilities budget for decommissioning usually goes above that. And it's no surprise. So just in the U.S., there's 24 decommissioning projects going on. Each of these projects is costing, at, in current dollars, $750 million. Now, they're not spending that now. They may say, well, we're going to be spending that $750 million, you know, starting in 10 years, and it's going to go on for 40 years as they clean it up. But, but you know, those are big, big numbers <laughs> around the world. There's a trillion dollars, one trillion dollars of future costs to decommission all the reactors that have been built. That's a pretty big number. I mean, you know, don't hear the word trillion thrown around that often. And just over the next 20 years, $200 billion is going to be sent to decommission the plants that are ready to be shut down and, and cleaned up. Now, the, the, the part of the problem, as I mentioned, that the nuclear reactors stay radioactive for a long time after they're shut down. When the fuel rods are in there, they're hot. And, you know, even if you take a couple of fuel rods or just one fuel rod, it's going to be warm. When you put them together, they get really hot. Take the fuel rods out. The metal that surrounds these fuel rods and the concrete and the other materials does get radioactive, and all that has to be cleaned up. And the radioactivity, it stays radioactive for literally thousands of years, depending on the materials. So even if you were to take out the nuclear fuel, you still have a lot of metal that's very, very contaminated. And these are big structures. I mean, you look at a nuclear plant, you've got this huge containment dome, concrete and steel. You've got pumps, you've got uh, structures that are supporting the fuel rods, you've got facilities that are underground to support them. All this has to be cleaned up. And, you know, we're not talking about something that you can just put in the back of a pickup truck. This is huge, huge things. So that's why it's expensive. Now, 
the way they decommission these plants is they got three different ways. They they sometimes do immediate dismantling. It's called decon. It sounds like a bug spray. And and those plants can be decommissioned in about five years. And I, I'd assume that those plants are the ones that have been shut down for a little while and, and uh, they're not that radioactive. And they've got equipment and robots that can kind of like remotely clean it up. And, and you know, got to hand it to the utilities that, and the organizations that are managing these plants. They do try and do it in a very responsible way. I mean, the goal is to have a green field. You know, there's a there used to be a nuclear plant there, and then in ten years there's a park where children are playing. You know, you know maybe maybe not, but decon that's immediately dismantling it. The second way to do it is something called safe enclosure or safe store. Basically, that's where you just lock it up, go away for fifty years, and then clean it up. Um, and then the the goal is uh, the radioactivity is going to diminish over that fifty year period, and then it'll be easier. Maybe we have better robots and and better ways of cleaning it up at that point. Who knows? And also, we probably you know becomes somebody else's problem. And then the third way is is called entombment, or you just basically leave it there forever. And that's what they're doing with Chernobyl and the accident. I mean, they just it's just too radioactive to clean up, and they just put a big cover over it, and it, and it becomes someone else's problems. I mean, not even our grandchildren's problems. It's just way out there. So, you know, it's expensive. So the question is, who, who pays for this decommissioning? Well, you know, ultimately the ratepayers always pay for this. The utilities invest in power plants. They expect them to run for 50 years. They figure out what the cost to operate it, to depreciate it, to clean it up. And when plants are shut down, the ratepayers still pay for that decommissioning. I look at my electric bill every month, and there's a charge for nuclear decommissioning. Now, we got good electricity from that, but we're still kind of paying for that electricity over you know 50 years. I don't know how long it's going to be. Now, what's worse is that there's 120 plants that were never put into service. They were, they were, the construction was started or design was started or the land was, was, um, was acquired and they were never built. And the ratepayers are still having to pay for those power plants that you know, never were, were, were constructed. So, so why were they not constructed? Well, the problem is, especially over the last 10 or 20 years, the economics of nuclear power are pretty lousy. I mean, it's it's kind of great technology in some ways, but when you look at all these externalities, these cleanup costs, these disaster costs, these insurance costs, it, it just it doesn't pencil out anymore because natural gas is cheap and uh, solar is really cheap and wind is really cheap. The, you, you look at the same situations happening with other fuels. Coal, this is a really cheap fuel, but it's very expensive to build a clean burning coal plant. Basically, it's impossible. You can get cheap coal, you can get a cheap coal plant, you can get a clean coal plant, but you can't get a clean and cheap coal plant. That's why they're not making them anymore. And that's why natural gas and solar and wind are replacing them. And that's that's how so, uh, utilities are trending. They're going with natural gas and they're going with solar. And that's just because the economics of nuclear. I mean, it's a, it's a big industry and there's still a lot of people that are very enthusiastic about it because theoretically it's very elegant. It just kind of would run forever, but there's just all these other costs. So so what what's taking over? Natural gas in the short term. But, you know, let's talk about solar. Solar is, is what's taking over now. And, and, you know, we do have situations, um, it, it's actually quite common, of where you have a very major solar spill. It happens every day. It's basically a really sunny day. You're spilling solar energy. We catch it with solar panels, and it turns out to be the cheapest way to generate electricity. And, and solar plants, whether they're a utility-scale solar plant or just panels on your roof, very fast to build and relatively cheap. Um, when you look at look at the um, the cost for those systems, it's cheaper than your electric bill, cheaper than what the, the utility charges you for electricity. And there's there's no um, there's almost no operating costs. The maintenance is is minimal. And you know if it doesn't rain, you just have to clean the panels. And it's also easy to decommission because you just recycle the glass, aluminum, and silicon. 
Um, yes, there's still a problem with generating power at night, but that's getting solved with storage and, and with fast, responsive uh, gas turbines when there's peaks. So what's happening is the economics of these power plants is driving utilities' choice of power sources. There's a complete transition from dirty fuels like coal and nuclear to, to natural gas and now solar and wind. There's 100 nuclear plants left in the U.S. A couple are still being built. Who knows if they're going to come online? They're no more being um, on the drawing board. And as I mentioned, everything's going towards a cleaner power. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, just announced their first quarter 2016 power plant installations. 707 megawatts of wind, 33 megawatts of solar. Now, note that this 33 megawatts of solar does not include the you know, one or 200 megawatts of rooftop solar that was installed on homes and businesses. So it's, it's pretty big. A little bit of hydro, even less natural gas. No new capacity was installed from coal nuclear or um, or geothermal um, or oil. So basically, in the first quarter, all of the new capacity was wind, solar, hydro, and a little bit of natural gas. So we look at what the total capacity is right now of power plants. And uh, among the renewables, 8.6% is hydro, big dams. Wind is 6.4%. Biomass is about 1.5%. Solar is about 1.4%, plus uh, all the distributed generation, which FERC doesn't count. So you got to figure solar is about probably 2 or 3 per, closer to 3%. So less than wind, but growing really, really fast. And geothermal, you know, great idea, pump some water into the ground, get steam, run turbine. That's about a third of a percent. And there's only a few places where geothermal really works, and it, you know, it, although it's great because it can kind of work 24-7, it's, it's uh, limited and relatively expensive. So it's, it's very interesting because of these economic issues, the economics of very expensive nuclear um, installations. It takes a long time to build them. They're really, really expensive to insure. They're basically uninsurable. The uh, utilities can't get insurance for the kind of disasters that they would have, so the federal government picks that up. And extremely expensive to clean up. Basically, there's a little charge on your electric bill, and that's going to go on forever. It, and, until um, all the nuclear plants are, are decommissioned in 100 years. What, what's, what's, what I really like to see, and these FERC numbers really are, are cluing us in on, is there's a little bit of solar and wind going in. Well, consistently, that's the major addition to our power sources. But, but no coal, no nuclear, and, and less and less natural gas. And so what's happening is gradually... Over you know a period of ten or twenty years, the capacity additions in the U.S. of these clean power sources, wind and solar, is going to mean that renewables are going to be the majority of our of our uh, fuel generation. And a lot of people who who were skeptical about solar five or ten years ago, saying, "Oh, it's never going to pay back." Cost trends of solar keep coming down, and it is just clearly cheaper than anything else, whether you're looking at it for your home, whether you're looking at it for your business, or even when you're looking at it for utility. And the storage problems are getting solved. So there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that solar and wind are going to be the dominant energy sources in the U.S. in 20 years. It's going to accelerate because the cost is going to keep going down and people are going to become more sensitive to some of these environmental issues. Environmental issues are really important, but when the economics are so favorable for utilities or for homeowners or businesses, that really, you know, that really uh, makes that transition happen a lot faster. 
So that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamonsolar.com and listen to the podcasts. (laughs) 